Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years' experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, BC, dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium BC fly-in fly fishing trip. Welcome to the Littoral Zone podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rowley. The Littoral Zone, or shoal area of the lake, is a place where the majority of the action takes place. My podcast is intended to do the same, put you where the action is to help you improve your stillwater fly fishing. On each broadcast, I, along with guests from all over the world, will be providing you with information, tips and tricks, flies, presentation techniques, along with different lakes or regions to explore. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please feel free to email me with your Stillwater-related fly fishing questions and comments. I do my best to answer as many as we can prior to each episode, just before the main content. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's show. This is Dave, your Wet Fly Swing podcast host, Phil Roy, back for another huge episode of the Littoral Zone today. This is our chance to break down stillwater fishing from one of the best, so you have the tools you need for success this season. Compared to moving waters, stillwater fly fishers tend to spend most of our effort using a variety of subsurface presentations. We just don't seem to have, or perhaps it might be better to say, take advantage of catching stillwater trout on the surface using either dry or emerger patterns. The visual take to a fly on the surface is perhaps one of the best experiences fly fishing has to offer. Joining me today is Jeff Perrin, owner of the Fly Fisher's Place Fly Shop located in Sisters, Oregon. He is also a stillwater addict. Within a short drive of his shop, Jeff has several quality trout lakes to choose from. One of Jeff's favorite stillwater presentation methods involves using dry and emerger patterns to catch trout on his local lakes, especially terrestrials. Jeff has applied the tricks and techniques he has learned on both his home waters and other lakes around the world, including Australia, to be consistently successful using surface flies. I'm really looking forward to talking with Jeff about his stillwater experiences and especially his approach to fishing dry flies on lakes. Okay, let's jump into this one and let Phil do his best mic drop as we head out onto the water. If you have questions anytime, you can reach out to Phil or me. You can head over to wetflyswing.com or check in with Phil. All right, so uh, joining us today is Jeff Perrin, owner-operator uh, I don't know if that's the right term, chef operator of the Fly Fisher's Place in uh, Sisters, Oregon. So welcome to my podcast, Jeff. It's great to have you on. I've been an admirer you, of Phil. yours for a while now, especially those waters you get the pleasure of fishing uh, down there. So uh, why don't we tell my listeners uh, who you are and how you got into fly fishing, how long, all that good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, I've been an admirer of yours, obviously, too, Phil, you and Brian, uh, taught, you know, me and all of us down here in Oregon so much. So it's been been great to read your books and watch your videos and uh, subscribe to your, uh, you know, your, uh, God, uh, what do you call that? The app? <laughs> what do you call that? 
The app, yes. The old app. Yeah, which unfortunately isn't running anymore. Um, long story short, the app developer unfortunately decided it to shut down. Uh, Brian and I weren't aware that was going to happen. But uh, we've still got all the content, most of the video content. So we're just trying to work out a way to repurpose that. So we really enjoyed doing that and hope to sort of resurrect it in some form in the near future. So, yeah. So yeah. But you've had the good fortune to travel all over the world because out of your, your fly shop in Oregon, obviously you've got trips that you do to your, your local lakes and guide there, but you also do hosted trips and get around a little bit, both um, with your customers and a little bit for yourself and some of the competition environments too, correct? Yeah, yeah. I've been lucky enough to travel uh, uh, to a lot of places. Um, we're we're actually heading with a group to Belize um, the day after the American Thanksgiving. Um, I know you guys just had your Canadian Thanksgiving yep. here recently, but uh, but ours is coming up in about two weeks. And the day after, we're taking a group of nine down to Belize, and then we go back again in the springtime. And in between there, I'll go uh, with a group to Argentina. And we've actually got about 20 people going to Argentina wow. over the winter. Um eight of which will be going with me in February. So that's a, a nice little bit of business. Um, it'll be my 22nd trip down to Patagonia when I go this time. And, you know, like you, I know you you spent some time at Jurassic Lake. Yep. I've not been to Jurassic Lake, but I've been to lots of other places around in, in Chile and in Argentine Patagonia. And boy, I sure do love it. And the, the lake fishing there is much different than the lake fishing I do here in Central Oregon. But um I always try to get the guides to take me an extra day on some of those lakes down there because fishing big fat Alberts and chubby Chernobyls around the bank lines or dragonflies or something when the time is right is is pretty darn exciting fishing. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, um, years ago, not too many years ago, in 2018, we traveled down to um, to Tasmania. Um, and I'll, I'll t- kind of tell you how that started, actually. Yeah. Um, the Fly Fishing International, um, formerly Federation of Fly Fishers, was holding their 50th uh, anniversary conclave. The very first conclave was on the McKenzie River, not too far from my fly shop in Sisters, Oregon. And they decided to bring back the 50th anniversary back to Oregon because most of those conclaves had been held in West Yellowstone or Idaho Falls or, you know, out someplace in the Rockies. And and they decided for the 50th, they'd come back to Oregon where it all started. So we, we welcomed that. And I had the opportunity to actually teach some classes during the uh, conclave here uh, when it returned to Bend. I was teaching some urine in, in classes on the North Saniam River and also the Crooked River. And these great people named uh, Peter and Karen Brooks took my class. And they were uh, the lodge owners in Tasmania. And after the class, they said, Jeff, you, you've just got to come down and, and join us in Tasmania. So... To make a long story short, um, we put together a little group of friends and travelers that we like to go with, and off we went. Um, and I honestly feel it was was kind of one of those, those at least for fishing life, that was a fishing life-changing event because, you know, we got to fish with some pretty interesting folks down there. Um, Peter and Karen, notwithstanding, are, are wonderful, wonderful hosts, and and uh, honestly, she's one heck of a fisherman. She's a comp angler herself. They had a guide named Tom Jarman who was uh, uh, ended up being our, our Tina and I's guide for several days. And I, I remember being out on the lake the first day. We were with his coach. I'm trying to remember his name right now. Uh, older fella, very good guide. 
and my friends uh, Ron and Daryl were with Tom, and and uh, um, the other two couples were with two two of the other guides, Peter and and Karen. Um, and we, we, you know, we that very first time uh, out there, we were lock style fishing. I'd I'd never seen lock style fishing. You know, we here in Oregon, we use a drogue um, mm-hmm. or a sea anchor, you know, and and kind of troll with it. But it never occurred to me to turn around the other direction and, and cast down wind and do all those different presentations and methods, uh, lock style, including a lot of dry fly fishing. So, you know, about three days into the trip, I think the group were sitting at the dinner table and we all were discussing our guides and, you know, Karen and Peter were there and, and uh, you know, they were the hosts. They, they did everything. They made coffee and served breakfast, guided all day, served dinner and cleaned up. It was really incredible, but we're sitting at the dinner table and and nobody was in disagreement that Tom Jarman was probably an absolute fishing savant plus just a very pleasant pleasant fellow so we we decided to um invite him to Oregon Tina and I went out and talked to him he was working on his boat out in the driveway of the of the lodge and we said hey you know if we bought you a plane ticket would you come to Oregon and and uh teach some classes stay with us and fish with us and he just lit up you know he's my god mates that would be so great so <laughs> sure enough mid-june you know um we picked him up at the airport and he ended up extending his stay and we had him teach some clinics for us uh, uh lots and lots of clinics on euro style techniques on the rivers but we also did some clinics on the lakes and and uh yeah just continued our own education but um you know really allowed our customer base to to learn so much more than we ever knew. Um, and just, it just brought, you know, I think the more, you know, the better it gets. Yeah. hundred percent. I don't, that's my motto. You never stop learning because you, you know, probably when you pass on into the next life, that's when you learn something new. But as far as fishing goes every day out on the water, every chance you get, you learn something new and to learn how people do things in other parts of the world. That's so applicable here. Cause you're right. We do get pigeonholed. You know, our culture is, we do a lot of anchored fishing, lock style fishing is only starting to sort of, people are experimenting with it and and finding out it's a very enjoyable way of fishing. Of course, as you and I both know, it's the way they competition fish because it keeps the the playing field level. Nobody's, you know, uh, you know, sort of locked themselves into one spot of the lake and has that, you know, run of that prime structure or where the fish are. Everybody gets a fair chance. So it's uh, definitely a neat way to fish and I really enjoy it. So... And I guess part of that is, is where we're going today is the, the techniques, tactics you learned from Tom and, and others and yourself, and you've applied for fishing dry flies, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. surface patterns on lakes, because I know from my development, that was something you didn't do very often. We fished a lot of subsurface stuff, fishing chronomid, pupa, and larva, and leeches, and damsels, and all the other major food groups. But I think we both agree that when you get the opportunity to fish a dry fly in any situation, moving water on the ocean with a gurgler or something um, or lakes, you want to be prepared for it so you can take advantage of it. Cause there's nothing better I think than watching a nose poke out and you get instant uh, feedback on your pattern, your presentation right then and there because the fish took it. Whereas fishing subsurface, you could be, you know, a lot of it's a mystery until something locks up and you catch something. So I'm looking forward yeah. to talking with you about that today. So. But let's just go back. You you live in Sisters, Oregon, for, so um, that's where the fly fisher's place is. Um, yep. You are the longest running, or I think you said tenured fly shop in both Oregon and Washington, correct? 
not tenured fly shop, but uh, fly shop owner in oh, Oregon okay. and Washington. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, just started my 34th year of wow. owning the fly fishers place. Yeah. And so uh, no plans to retire quite yet. <laughs> well, if you're in a fly shop, you probably can't, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hopefully someday, Bill. Yep. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 55 here on my next birthday. And yes, figure I still got another good 10 years in me on on that. Um, you know, at some point I would certainly like to kind of step back from the, you know, the fly shot, you know, the, yeah, I've been writing preseason orders for the last month since the guide season kind of started to slow down, you know, just counting flies and, you know, seeing what we bought last year and projecting what we're going to need next year. You know, it's tedious. It's a lot of work and, uh, you know, I'd rather be fishing right now. Daniel from Northern Rockies Adventures will be joining me on the podcast this year. Uh, Check it out, episode 540, where we're going to talk about what it was like growing up in the northern Rockies and around float planes and what it was like becoming a float plane captain. Um, And we also find out about the family premium uh, BC fly fishing business. Stay tuned and be sure to check out nradventures.com slash wet fly swing. Absolutely, absolutely. So Sisters is just down the road from Bend, right, in Central Oregon, yeah. for those that maybe yep, aren't yep. up on their Oregon geography. Uh, yeah. And you have some wonderful still waters. I've been down there a couple of times, but obviously don't have the experience you have down there. But you've got some pretty special lakes down there too, don't you? We do. You know, Crane Prairie Reservoir is always always one that hits the, um, you know, the books and, and magazines and you know, lots of people have heard of it, but we've got lots of other lakes that, you know, if you're not from the area, you don't know anything about them. You know, up in, in the Newberry Crater, the, a couple of caldera lakes, uh, they're up about 6,400 feet east in Polina Lake. If I ever write a memoir, I'm going to I'm gonna name the memoir uh, my life in a volcano because I spend <laughs> the majority of my time up at east in Polina Lakes. Um just down the road from Crane Prairie, heading a little bit uh, north from Crane Prairie, there's a mountain lake behind the ski area, which our, our ski area here is Mount Bachelor. The lake is Hosmer Lake, and it is a uh, fly fishing only lake. The entire lake is a shoal. Uh, it's connected with a channel, a, a system of channels. It's a little creek bed that runs through it, but uh, it, it's fascinating fishing, a lot of sight fishing, a lot of great dry fly fishing, but certainly, you know, in the you know, shallow water indicator stuff, yep. sinking line stuff. It's a fantastic lake and one that I, I cherish uh, not only to fish on my own, but to guide people. They always enjoy it. The views are spectacular. You know, those are just a few. We've got a lake just outside of town here called Three Creeks Lake. It's up at about 6,500 feet in this bowl of this beautiful mm-hmm. mountain. And um, uh, it's a heck of a good local fishery. Um I've been fishing there since I was about 11 and it's one of the places I actually, I think it's the first place I ever fly fished, um, a lake actually it was three creeks Lake with my, my, uh, good neighbor friend, uh, and his dad and their uncle, uh, ran the concession up there had a little store in the boat rentals and we'd go up a camp and it was great times back then we we're, you know, mostly trolling Royal Cushion bucktails and, uh, all of, uh, Montana nymph with a red thorax was a great fly, probably ate it as a dragonfly nymph, I'd guess. Um, Still a popular fly in England. I see them tying Montanas there and that's sort of a pattern that is sort of considered old school and nobody uses it anymore, but it's still, I think, a popular pattern. 
you know, yeah. uh, or variations of it on English still water. So it's kind of ironic how <laughs> what we would consider, uh, nobody uses that anymore. And now every, you know, in other places, it's the newest, greatest thing. Yep. Now, didn't Hosmer have Atlantic salmon in it at one time? Was that, am I correct there? I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, around 10 years ago now, ODF&W decided to stop stocking Atlantic salmon in Hosmer. Um, and the first year that they dropped the Atlantic salmon program, they put in cutthroat trout. And then a year or two later, they started at, besides the cutthroat, mm-hmm. they, which they continued to stock, they started adding crane prairie stock rainbow, uh, which are just growing to enormous sizes. Um, Sounds fact, horrible. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not horrible at all. In fact, I would say that on on average, we're seeing bigger rainbows um, and Hosmer than we do at, at Crane Prairie. Not that there's anything wrong with the Crane Prairie fish, but catch a lot of 18 to 22 inch fish at, at Crane and at Hosmer, just ever so slightly bigger than that. Oh, okay. So if I book my flight for when? <laughs> uh, why, why, why it's come down in June. <laughs> okay. And you've also, is it East Lake as well? It's got a pretty good Calabatus hatch. Am I correct there or am I grasping it? Yeah, straws? you're absolutely Absolutely correct. I would call Eastlake our number one calabatus fishery in Central Oregon, quite possibly our number one calabatus fishery in the state. Mm-hmm. You know, years ago when I first started fishing Crane Prairie in the 80s, um, Crane Prairie had a pretty tremendous calabatus hatch. Some different water conditions, water problems, you know, drought, uh, irrigation issues, you know, stickleback uh, population, um, all kinds of things have contributed to having less calabatus. Interestingly, um, three three years ago or two years ago, we had uh, we had a year in June where there was about a week where it just seemed like it was it was back, baby, it was back. Yeah. And you know, you'd go back, you know, last year and and this year about that same time in mid June and just. You, know, you saw some trickling around, but it wasn't like the epic calabatus hatches that you know we got that one year and that we would always get back in the in the late eighties, mid eighties, and late eighties um, when I first started fishing Crane Prairie. I, I used to fish Crane Prairie every Thursday morning with my college fishing buddy Chester Allen. I worked at a fly shop in Bend, um, and both of it, he worked as a maintenance guy in Sun River, a resort just south of Bend. And we would start our day every Thursday morning at Crane Prairie, kicking out in our float tubes from a place called the Osprey Management Point near the resort. And we were joined every morning by a bunch of old farts from the Central Oregon fly fishers. <laughs> I've spoken to those guys. <laughs> I know. They, these guys would be out yeah. in their prams drinking, uh, you know, screwdrivers, vodka and, <laughs> and orange juice, eating donuts and uh, catching fish on calabatus and damsels. So it was, it was great. And usually Chester and I would get, you know, blown off the lake by about lunchtime and we would... Uh, go have a burger at the South Twin Lake Resort and either fish the Lower Deschutes or the Crooked River for the rest of the day. So those are fantastic days for sure back at Crane Prairie and, and really just in general um, here in Oregon. Still is great here. Oh, it, is. it sounds like I've got a good friend that lives in Bend now. Um, he retired and moved up from California, which apparently seems to be a popular thing to move from California <laughs> to Central Oregon. Um, but yep. I, to me, the common theme I heard throughout, and again, the theme of this podcast is the dry fly fishing opportunity you have there and through, you know, your experience with Tom and, and traveling around to apply those techniques to still waters. And I think we mentioned that most times people are thinking still waters is all a subsurface game and the best dry fly opportunities are always on moving water, but yep. it's a very popular tactic 
not only in uh, Australia, but also in England um, as well and uh, other places. Uh, and yet out in Western North America, Western Canada, Western United States, we don't get the opportunity to do it anymore. Do it. And I think we should because A, first of all, if fish start poking their noses out, you want to catch It's tough to beat that one-on-one experience of trying to get a fish. You get instant feedback on your fly and your presentation. So I think that's why it's important uh, to have that dry fly fishing in your arsenal, right? I agree. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the things that um, my client base uh, that I guide enjoys so much about being out with me, besides the fact that I'm I'm hilarious and I make them laugh <laughs> all the time. Uh, no, that's the best I, part. Uh, I, 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 sometimes I'm, you know, it's pretty fun being with these people. A lot of guys I'm guiding you five, six, maybe even eight or ten times a year, and you really get to know people and understand their sense of humor and can really kind of, you know, turn the screws on them a little bit and give them a hard time, and, and it's a lot of laughs. So we have a great time. But I think I think more than that, you know, they wouldn't keep going with me if we weren't catching fish mm-hmm. and, and I, if I wasn't providing, you know, really great service with a with a heck of a nice boat or boats and, and equipment that I provide in there and, and stuff. But I think what they really appreciate, uh, so many of them, is the fact that I do focus so much on dry flies. I, uh, look, man, I mean, I've got the, you know, Patagonia waterproof bag that is full of every spool and sinking line imaginable. I own every strike indicator that is known to man, you know, and, and, and I fish that way too, but I fish so many dry flies, uh, throughout the day and season that I think a lot of people are really surprised at how much dry fly fishing, even when, oh, it's not the dry fly time. You know, one of the things that I do is I move around, I, you know, I try to pick my lake based on, you know, elevation, weather conditions, hatches, um, if not hatches terrestrial activity and really try to make sure that we have the best opportunity to do you know at least a good portion of the day uh, up on a dry fly and and sometimes it doesn't work out and that's fine we'll fish an indicator or a sinking line that's yep. okay that's the same and it's amazing you mentioned you can even pull fish up when there's no apparent dry surface activity you know and we mentioned earlier on about go i go down to jurassic lake and you know a big chubby chernobyl you can pull fish up that you know they will come up and to see a fish in that 10 plus pound uh, category put its head out of the water is a bit heart stopping <laughs> you know <laughs> trying not to set the hook too early and pull it out because it almost scares you how big the fish are so you mentioned you've got calabatus what other um dry fly oper- you know other insects you mentioned terrestrials so your beetles your ants your grasshoppers are they all popular yeah. there or are we talking just ants we talking just hoppers or all of them no, no, all, all of the terrestrials for sure. But I just run through the list of, you know, some other things that we fish um, on dries. So um, some of our lakes have a really good black dancer caddis uh, hatch. Okay. Um, you'll see a ton of them in the morning around the boat ramps um, and docks uh, kind of hovering, dancing with, you know, with a big cloud of them. And a lot of customers look at those with their long antenna and they think, oh, it's calabatus, you know. Yep. I'm like, nope, look a little closer. Those <laughs> are actually caddis. And in the evenings, you'll get some pretty tremendous emergences of those caddis. So fishing like a black X caddis uh, in a 16 or 18 works pretty great for that. Um, well, we do get traveling sedge uh, on some of the lakes. I've seen kind of a resurgence of that. Um, had several bad, bad years of uh, traveling sedge where they were almost non-existent. But uh, these last two years, seen a lot more of them, uh, particularly on Hosmer. 
of course, damsel adults, man, I had some just crazy good fishing on damsel adults. I'm going to tell you a quick story. So sure. had, had, uh, had my customer milt and, and another customer, Kevin Milt's friend, Kevin, I actually like Kevin better, but, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, we were, we were cruising along the shoreline at Polina Lake in this little, this little kind of back bay, very shallow water. And we'd been fishing, uh, one had a, a beetle on, one had a damsel on and, and we we're fishing and I'd see this, just this beautiful rise. It had had to have been a, you know, a nice Brown and, and I use a Minn Kota bound mount, uh, trolling motor with a remote control that I'd hang around my neck on a lanyard and. And we'd go really slow along the shorelines when possible. And Kevin was in the bow of the boat and he, he throws the stamps just a little short of where I wanted him to throw it. It's probably in about a foot of water, but maybe around 12 feet off of the, the bank line. And the brown that I saw rise earlier was probably just inches from the bank line, but he saw the damsel and just came straight at it. And you know, when the fish is coming straight at it and they're locked in, mm-hmm. but you see that that whole body just you know their tail and fins and everything are coming at that fly just straight on that fish did not care that that boat was anywhere near us and came up and just inhaled that damsel it was one of the coolest damsel takes i've ever seen um and i I just i just love i love damsel take typically because they smash them but they don't always smash them you know Sometimes they just kind of roll on them and, and open their mouth and and uh, roll on it and bring it down. But it's a beautiful take, and I love that damsel fishing time when you can catch them on dry flies. And Polina Lake and East Lake and Hosmer Lake and Crane Prairie um, all have great damsel adult uh, times so that you can can really catch a lot of fish on damsel adults. Okay, let's. If that doesn't sell it what, for no other reason, just that explosive takes. Because you mentioned the traveler sedges, we've up in. Uh, Western Canada, where I live, it's, um, you know, with all the drought conditions that we were experiencing as well, I think it dried up a lot of the prime shoal areas where the larvae were, and it's taken a while for them to reestablish themselves in some bodies of water. And unfortunately in others, they just haven't come back. And they're such a fun insect because they're big. They're like golden stone size. And the the takes are usually pretty explosive. Um, I think the last good hatch I ran into is my wife and I went down to fish Monster Lake near Cody, Wyoming. And we're just going yeah. down there for a visit and just going to go fish some lakes and ran smack dab, you know, surprisingly into a uh, a traveling sedge hatch that was on, you know, usually that's more nocturnal in their habits, but they were on, you know, middle of the day and all the way through and it was unbelievable. And, and that's where, you know, a, a lock styling approach really helped because we tried the traditional anchoring and you'd sort of you know, tag all those fish within your casting range. And then every other fish after that seemed to be just that little bit further, almost like they knew that little zone of uh, around your boat was not uh, a safe place to be. And I said, you know, to heck with this, we're going to throw the drogue out and just go from one end of the shoal, the lake, because the lake was like you mentioned about Hosmer, just one giant shoal. Why not cover it all? Right. And it was just spectacular any fly as long as it was the right size and you could strip it and make a weight because those things like to scurry and they would come up and you got to know the rise forms of the different fish a rainbow would typically explode on it cutthroat would try and it's almost like they're uncoordinated they're trying to play with it like a puppy um, before they eventually get a hold of it browns tend to be a little bit more delicate you know um yeah it was it was pretty cool experience so 
what's what's your fly? I I like a tom thumb, but what do you like? Uh, tom thumb's good. Another popular fly we like is uh, Michelock sedge. Uh, it was in my first book. It was uh, tied by that's the uh, one with the stacked. That's yeah, the, stacked, the, the uh, tri wings yes. of elk hair. Yeah. And in recent mm-hmm. years, that's a fun pattern to fish, but it's dubbing and stacking and it's time consuming. And I've got yep. one, I'm going to have it out my YouTube channel in the near future called the Synthetic Sedge. That's all synthetic materials, uh, like Semperfly poly yarn and straggle string for the body and a little rubber legs to kick. And um, simple to tie, no stacking, no dubbing, and uh, being synthetic, it repels water more so than natural materials. Um, and it easy to tie. So yeah. And sometimes that day on, on, um, Monster Lake, uh, Chernobyl ant, um, uh, a chubby Chernobyl, anything that made them, you know, you could make, make a wake. That's all that seemed to matter. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, there are those special days. So yeah, Tom Thumb is great. Not the most durable fly on the planet. And it seems the more no. rattier it gets, the better they like it. The better it works. Yeah. But if you tie it ratty, I found sometimes they don't like, they want to chew it up, not have you tie a poorly tied fly. <laughs> they want to have, they want the honor of destroying it, not you tying it, you know, haphazardly and bits and pieces sticking out everywhere. So yeah, yeah. good fly. I, you know, you just gave me an idea. I'm, I'm going to try some rubber like Tom Thumbs out for next yeah, season. I just so. like, cause you can yep. make them skate, right? You just imitate yeah. that kicking of the little legs mm-hmm. running along and anything to, you know, almost like a gurgler approach. Cause you know, even, you know, in our lakes, where I am now in Alberta, we have a lot of uh, bait fish like uh, fathead minnows and brook stickleback that the browns and rainbows yep. will get in the shallows and herd up. And um, and that extends right through, uh, you know, the prairie provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And I was in Manitoba this fall and we were getting fish, big tiger trout on popper fry in a foot to two feet of water against the cattails. And that fly's yeah. got, you're probably familiar with it. It's basically, a, looks like a little zonker with a foam post at the front. So the fly kind of hangs just in the surface about on a slight angle, maybe a 30 degree angle with that little popper sticking up. That's what you get to see. And that makes it skate. And you just, like you, you discuss with your damsel, this big wall of water, this big um, bulge in the water comes up behind it and just crushes it. So my definition of dry fly fishing on lakes is pretty broad. If it floats, and <laughs> insect, yeah. fish, it you know, we get boatmen and back swimmers up here. Do you have that? Uh, down there in the fall months, we do. Yeah, we do. Yep. We'll get that. That's pretty exciting because those yeah. fish just seem to lose their minds when they get on those things. And and it was uh, my wife and I were lock styling earlier this year, and it was a little breezy, and you had to as soon as your fly hit the water, you had to make a almost a four foot pull to get tight to those flies because that the way your flies land on the water is just like the naturals, and those fish would just explode on them. And if you weren't tight to your flies, there was slack and they, they grabbed it and threw it and you never had a chance. You just left shaking. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, okay, for dry flies, let's what run through the gear a little bit. Rods you like to use, weights, lengths, lines, and then we'll walk, get into the, you know, the black hole of leader setups because everybody's got different setups. So we'll talk through all that. Yeah. So let's just, just walk through that from sort of rods, lines, um, right down to leaders and flies. Yeah. So, you know, I'm fishing mostly, personally, I'm fishing mostly sage, uh, lake rods, you know, the new R8 and have some, you know, last, you know, a couple of years ago model sage X's, um, mostly 10 footers, mm-hmm. you know, five and six weight here. Uh, I do have a, a 10 foot four weight that I employ a lot. Um, and you know, for, for dry fly fishing, 
as opposed to uh, indicator fishing, I prefer totally different floating lines for that situation. And, um, you know, the dry fly fishing line that, you know, that I'm going to present a calabatus or a damsel or a beetle um, is typically going to be a pretty similar line to what I'd use on a spring creek um, <laughs> here in Oregon, too. So, you know, I don't think it's 100% necessary for it to be a totally stealthy color, but I don't think that it hurts either. You know, having a all-over tan, you know, um, a head on the line or gray, you know, can add some benefit to the fish not seeing it in the air and, and maybe not being as spooky when it's landed on the water. So I, you know, I definitely fish a, you know, pretty long rod. Um, you know, there are times that I go out and play on the lake with a seven and a half a five weight fiberglass too, or, you know, fish my old Winston IM six, eight and a half, but six weight is just a cool rod and it's fun to put a bend in once in a while. Um, but you know, I think for really serious lake fishing, you know, you're looking at nine and a half and 10 foot rods yeah. and, and I, you know, I prefer a 10 footer. Yeah, I'm the same way, or even longer. Um, yeah, yeah, but you fish the rod you've got, right? So people don't have to go out and necessarily totally retool um, for they still don't. waters. But I think if you do any amount of still water fishing, you're going to quickly fall in love with that, that that extra length. That one foot can make such a difference. Yeah, and um, you know, reels. Uh, you know, I think. Look, I you know for for my guide rods for boat rods. Um, you know, I've got everything in doubles because you know a lot lot of times i have two people on the boat and you can't hand somebody one thing and say well he's got the only one of these on the boat and that's working so (laughs) tough luck pal (laughs) you know um yeah that's not a good business model for a prolonged guide service (laughs) that's not no so you know for but for myself um i've got everything in doubles too because guess what you know and when my wife goes fishing with me and i don't have what she needs i would be in big trouble so um, you know, at home, you know, I mean, I'm using mostly sage and, and galvan reels, um, have a million spools for, for both all the different sinking lines, but, um, you know, just something with a good disc drag that's smooth, that's reliable. Um, you know, you don't often see the backing out on the lake. Uh, although I did have a fish at Osmer take us to the backing here, uh, in August, that was spectacular. And, uh, um, yeah, for, you know, for leaders for dry fly fishing, you know, I, I use a lot of chassis style leaders for all my sinking lines and, and indicator fishing. But for dry fly fishing, I, I, I usually just use a Rio Power Flex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a big, big fan of Rio Supple Flex for Spring Creek fishing, but I prefer the thicker butt section and the better turnover, uh, particularly on windy days um, and really making sure that, you know, everything straightens and goes towards that target, whether the target be a bank line or a log or the drop-off zone, you know, whatever. It could be a million things, as as most of our listeners know. But I like those real power flex leaders, and I always fish a fluorocarbon tippet when I'm in the lake. You know, I use uh, uh, Fluoroflex Plus, um, and, you know, typically 3X through 6X. I carry 7X, and I certainly carry 0, 1, and 2. Yeah. But most of the fishing that we're doing around here is is 4, 5, and 6. Yeah. Um, and just and just kind of matching that to the fly size more than anything. And uh, I I always like to sneak in. You know, we get we have you know customers that aren't used to fishing. You know, six X and and some especially not used to fishing. If they're not used to fishing six X, I guarantee you they're not used to nope. fishing. Seven X. Some days you just have to go to that. Now I almost never tell people you know that I'm putting seven X on for them because 
that's a mental block that yeah. uh, that just oh god i won't be able to do it but so you know you get them to hook a fish and, and bring it to the net and you're like i just wanted to let you know you just landed that fish on 7x you know and they're like really that's <laughs> so cool you know it's like yeah you did it and you're gonna do it again um so that's a lot of fun yeah so a couple of questions there first of all you mentioned chassis leaders for our uh, listeners that aren't for what do you mean by a chassis leader yeah, so uh, chassis leader, I actually learned in, in Tasmania. Um, I guess to an extent, I'd been fishing a chassis leader for chronomid, especially deep water chronomid fishing for a long time. But, um, you know, on sinking lines, I never fished a chassis leader. And it's simply a, a butt section, could be anywhere from three feet. A lot of times I use a three or four foot butt section, typically 12 or 15 pound cigar fluorocarbon. And I'll I'll loop to loop that to the fly line. I'll put a tippet ring on the on the other side. I've been using uh, these oblong shaped Japanese tippet rings. Mm. Um, they're like three millimeters, I think, and they're really cool, man. They're they're really cool. They they stop a if you have a a slip strike indicator on, they'll stop the you know the indicator from slipping down all the way. I rarely use those on the shorter leaders because not necessary. Yep. Um, but yeah, chassis leader is a great way to go because if you've got this, you know, 15 pound butt section that you can move your strike indicator up and down that, that length, whatever it is you have, if it's four feet long, you can change your depth of your flies. If you're fishing underneath an indicator by up to four feet without changing your tippet. And if you're fishing uh, a chassis style leader on a sinking line, obviously you can put a fairly long tippet on there and put, you know, um, the point fly on and then a, a dropper fly. And if you feel comfortable with it, you could put a bob uh, on as well and, and have, you know, two droppers and a point. Yep. Um, and that can, that can be pretty effective. So your leader, you've got the butt section, then you've got yep. to that tippet ring and then it's just straight tippet more or less uh, for straight. the bounce lead. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Straight yeah. tippet. And just adjust that for the situation. Uh, why the yeah. oblong uh, versus round? Well, they're really easy to handle. And so, I think more than anything, that was just that why I, I tried them. You know, I found them one day on the internet. And I was like, well, those look really cool. So I ordered some and, and uh, um, they're just extremely easy to handle. Yeah. Well, that's a good deal because I've watched people, they always tell them, don't take them off the tippet ring. D- don't take them off the snap ring they're dispensed on until you've tied yeah. onto them. Because I've watched people pull one off and they're trying to hold this little thing and they're thumb on forefinger and it's... It's great for tippet ring sales because you're just dropping them in the grass and, and uh, yeah. not using them. Okay. So the other question I had um, that popped into my mind, and maybe for our listeners too, is fluorocarbon versus nylon tippets for your for dry flies uh, on lakes. So you uh, mind either way or do you prefer one over the other and why? Uh, I'm definitely on, on Stillwater's uh, fluorocarbon tippet yeah. guy. Um you know, I, I think it's really important because it's it's just more invisible in the water due to its light refractive index, right? I mean, nylon is sixty something percent visible, and fluorocarbon is is got less than ten percent visible. Yeah, you know, and yeah, fluorocarbon sinks into the film a little bit, which probably is a great thing to minimize shadowing, yeah, um, and surface disturbance. Um, and you know, I mean, in some cases, that sink could result in a little bit of micro drag um on a windy day but probably not enough to worry about you know missing opportunities for fish uh in the still water so i you know in rivers particularly technical rivers like armatolius river which is a fly fish only spring creek about 
12 miles from the fly shop, I would never fish fluorocarbon as a dry fly tippet. I just feel like it sinks into the film, adds a lot of micro drag, and it's not the right material for that. So I'd use nylon mm-hmm. there. But in lakes, I think the invisibility, the light refraction, and the fact that it, it just you know kind of sinks down into the film makes it a better material for that. Plus, yeah. it's just tough. You know, you get fish after fish. It's soaking in the lake all day long. It's not absorbing water. Not strength stays the same. Fish runs you over a log or here we have, you know, it's volcanic here. So we've got a lot of lava rock and it's just tougher. You know, yeah. it's just tougher than nylon. Yeah, I like it because you, sometimes people say, oh, well, uh, you know, a small flies fluorocarbon will drag it down. But I find when I'm fishing dries on lakes, most times you're not just pitching it out there and then like you're fishing an indicator and then you sort of sit down and wait for a fish to find it. It's pretty dynamic. You're picking up presenting letting it sit for a second picking it up putting it somewhere else so that fly really doesn't have a chance for that to happen because it's just not on the water long enough so well and look if it is sinking um you know i carry the the little cnf uh, design ruby cell fly dryer plus an amadou yeah plus an umqua feather merchants uh you know dry fly towel i can squeeze the water out of any of those with those three tools and then put it in my you know my loon or shimazaki dry shake and get that fly floating really, really great again. Yeah. So I'm not worried about the fly singing. Look, flies sink. I mean, dry, you fish dry flies, you have to be prepared to maintain that dry fly on a regular and constant basis. And so if you're not maintaining the dry fly with those tools, the you know, mm-hmm. some kind of a fly dryer and then a powder to, you know, a desiccant powder to get the last bit of moisture out of there, you're not really fishing dry flies as effectively as you could be. No, and I I don't know if you've tried this, but I've also fished dries using uh, lines like a midge tip, you know, either Rio's the original midge tip or the hover tips. And most people look at me and go, you're fishing dries with it? Okay, explain how that happens. And, you know, most of the dries, if you're looking at English style dries, they're, they're not your parachute atoms, humpies, uh, your traditional Catskill dries. They're kind of a, a wet fly with maybe a little bit better hackle. So they're, they sit in the film. So this yeah. midge tip you cast out, eventually, yes, that tip is going to overpower those flies and pull them under. And the second they disappear, then you start a hand twist retrieve and track those flies just beneath the surface where those fish are, that's the zone they're feeding in. And you're pulling this gangly, buggy looking fly through them. They love it. And so you're getting, I find Uh you get this two for one presentation. You get that whole dry fly thing. And then when they're gone, then you just, you know, track them back, you know, a little hand twist, uh, get them back and pick them up and cast them again. So it's kind of a, a different way of doing it. And that was a technique I read about or learned about in England where they do a lot of the dry dry fly fishing over there um, with teams of dries and things like that. Because I, I remember, you know, you know John Horsey as well, right? He's a, a English competition angler and uh, has, has quite a fault. You and Stillwater guys like you and I. I don't know him, but I know who he is. Yeah. No, I don't know him either, but know of him. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he was mentioning he likes to use seven weights for the ability to pick up a lot of line and cover a fish. Um, it's just got more backbone to do it, right? So it's just interesting how, you know, different places on the planet, how they adapt their presentation tactics to their local situation and, and how applicable they are to the rest of the world, right? Thankfully, our fish don't know about boundaries and borders and what they are and aren't supposed to do based on their their the part of the earth they live in. Um, they just, they're fish, thankfully, and they just do what they do. So that's pretty good. So you like to, do you like to use multiple flies when you're fishing dries? Personally, I love to use multiple flies when I'm, when I'm fishing dries. Um, 
you know, when I'm guiding, I find it it uh, can be fairly difficult to get yeah. clients to fish multiple flies. I find that the that the tangle percentage uh, and the time spent, you know, either totally re-adding, you know, a, a new leader or a long piece of tippet um, just isn't worth a lot of times that the effort that, you know, putting two flies out on the water is. But yeah, I mean, I certainly have some customers that, that have the casting abilities to do that better. I usually fish two flies. Um, you know, when we were in Taz, uh, you know, we were fishing three and that was very cool. But, you know, typically I, I prefer around here just to fish two flies. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times that's an emerger and, you know, a done or, yeah. you know, some some combination. Maybe it's a beetle and an ant or, you know, something just to show the fish different things. And when that fish rises, you can drop two in the general vicinity. Or I just find when you put that third on, a lot of times that tangle coefficient seems to go off the dial for some reason. Um, yeah. So are you tying off the bend or are you off uh, uh, dropper tags? No, dropper tag. I prefer a dropper tag. Yeah. I'm the same way too. Yeah. I think off the bend, I think off the bend and still water fishing is, is um, I mean, maybe, uh, you know, maybe off of a hopper or a, or a chubby or something mm-hmm. like that. That's not that bad of a, an idea, but uh, even that I would still prefer to fish uh, a bigger fly off of a tag. Um, and then maybe the smaller fly at the end or, or vice versa. But no, I, I don't generally fish off the bend in lakes. Imagine a place where the river meets your doorstep without breaking the bank. Introducing Jackson Hole Fly Company, redefining the online fly shop experience. JH Fly Co. designs and manufactures all of their own products so they can deliver high quality fly rods, reels, flies, and gear directly to your door at incredible prices. You can visit them right now, jacksonholeflycompany.com. No, I'm the same way. I find, you know, if we get off topic a bit here, but subsurface, and it comes from the Euro nymphing, right? That you've got, if you're tying eye to the hook, bend off that hook, and then down to the second fly, the point fly. Um, first of all, I worry that you impact the action or the ability of that fly to fish because you basically tied a weight to it. Think of it like a car and a boat trailer, right? All of a sudden, that car is not nearly as maneuverable or behaves nearly as well as if you didn't have the boat trailer on the back of it. And if a yeah. fish comes in in a vertical presentation and kind of opens its mouth to take your fly, its nose, you know, its lower jaw and nose can, you know, touch the leader and push the fly away, or all of a sudden the fish senses something tickles, I guess, and they don't like it, and they refuse to fly, right? So I yeah. like those, into, plus just the simple convenience, if you want to change a fly, you just change the fly, right? Um, you know, other than consuming the dropper tag, which you can replace. Um, yeah, I'm like you, I'm the, I'm the same way. It's a, 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 I find a superior way to fish, so. So when you're fishing personally yourself, do you prefer to fish anchored or... Uh, lock style, or you mentioned using your Minkota. What are some of your tactics you like to do when you got your rod line and reel ready? You feel you got a good opportunity to get a fish on top. You know, how do you like to approach it? What's your tactics? Well, you know, I'm a mover, man. I, I, I mean, I certainly, you know, can see the benefit of uh, putting two anchors down and, and staying in one spot um, at times. But I like to move. I've always liked to move where, you know, when I learned how to fish from my grandpa, it's like if the fish is slow, move fast. If the fish is fast, move slow. Yeah. And it's just always kind of stuck with me on streams and also now in lakes as I've really kind of taken my career into this, you know, still water realm. So, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll use the, sometimes I use both the Drogue and the Minkota in 
um, in combination. You know, put the drove off the side of the boat, but you know the wind kind of keeps pushing the boat into the shoreline. I'll just you know use that Minn Kota and spin it around, and you know every once in a while hit the motor up to three or five or whatever it takes just to back up just a little bit and yet continue to, you know, be drifting down with the wind. And, uh, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times here, you know, in the summertime, we do get calm days, um, get more windy days than we get calm days, but the drogue is, is not an option. And so we'll just, you know, kind of use that Minn Kota motor and, you know, just cruise along the shoreline at comfortable casting distance, uh, or non spooking distance for the fish off of the target zone. Um, and keep moving. You know, a lot of times on, on those days, that's going to be terrestrial fishing. That's going to be, you know, finding logs that, you know, are going to have carpenter ants or other ants that they're falling off. Um, it's, uh, you know, near our rocky cliffs or, or lava rock uh, that harbor a lot of the grasshoppers. And then just anywhere there's a forest nearby, which is most of our lakes uh, fishing those beetles. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of times that fishing, you know, when we're moving like that is done with uh with the terrestrial stuff and then you know a lot of times the calabatus hatches or the damsel hatches um will anchor up or hit anchor mode on the mincota and and stick close there for a while and just stay put yeah those men because um in our lakes i try to bow mount but our lakes have pretty informal launches and trying to recover a boat with the the bow mount there was interesting <laughs> because the 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 bow mount hits the bottom you know 10 12 feet from shore and i'm in this trying to not embarrass myself to recover my boat, um, but still use the stern mount. But with your bow mount, you have the ability, right? You can cruise contour lines um, with those, can't you? And that's such a benefit to be able to do that, you know, to target those areas. I think that's a really, really important uh, topic of conversation too, is cruising those contour lines. You know, one of the, I think one of the things that a lot of people are missing uh, when they're out on the water is the ability to see not only fish, but maybe more so the structure that the fish would be into. Um, either they're not wearing the right glasses, uh, or they haven't trained their eyes, or they're just not paying attention uh, to see that. Um, you know, it's just such an incredible tool to have as a as an angler, uh, whether you're guiding yourself or guiding for a living, um, to be able to to work that work those contour lines and know where you are in the lake and be able to read that structure and be able to see into the water to really understand where the fish are going to be. Yeah. And let's, I just want to touch on a drogue a little bit. I have covered it in um, previous episodes. I had Devin Olson, U.S. fly fishing team member on, and we talked about using competition techniques in uh, sort of recreational still waters. And we talked about a drogue, but if somebody's just listening for the first time to my podcast, Jeff, can you explain what a drogue is and why it's such a, a neat tool to use uh, on still waters? Yeah, absolutely. So a drogue is essentially um, an underwater parachute. Um, if you come from other boating, you know, world stuff, uh, um, sometimes a drogue would be called a sea anchor in a lot of locations. I think in the fly fishing world, particularly the Commonwealth countries uh, call these same devices a drogue. Yep. And here, you know, some people call them drift socks. Some people call them a sea anchor. But I think it's cool that the term drogue, which is synonymous for those other things, is is really, you know, kind of become more universal. So even here in Oregon, you know, when I'm talking to people about drogues, they're also talking to me about drogues. Yeah, yeah. we used our drogue today. And thank God, you know, that term is, you know, for a fly angler, I think that that's what people ought to call them um but essentially you know you you 
you know, decide which side of the boat you want to fish from and, and put the drogue on the other side of the boat. So if you want to fish off the port side of the boat, you'd, you'd put the uh, drogue on the starboard side of the boat and turn the craft into the wind and let that uh, uh, wind push the side of the boat. And that drogue is going to inflate and it's going to slow the boat down substantially in the wind. Yeah, it's amazing how slow it, it you know, you, before you deploy as you're clipping along and all of a sudden, ugh, you just, yeah. time stands still almost. Yeah, it's wonderful. I have, I think, five or six different drogues. I, mm-hmm. I use two different boats and um, my biggest drogue I actually uh, brought back from Tasmania. It was one that the guys used over there and I was just so impressed with it. Like, I got to have one of those. Yeah, is that the one I've seen? We talked about Tom Jarman, and if you're not familiar with who he is, just look him up on YouTube. He's got a great channel, uh, explains a lot of the tactics that uh, Jeff and I are talking about. But it looks almost mesh-like and has a, it looks like the the top of it floats. A, it looks, it's different to the ones. I yeah. use the 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 Grays or the Winchwood style paradrogues. I got mine from the UK. Um, yeah. His looks different. and It's interesting you brought that up. What's different about that drogue and why you liked it? Yeah, so it comes with two pockets um, uh, in kind of the, you know, the Patagonia duffel bags that are yep. so, so you know, popular. Um, those are essentially made out of truck turp material, yeah. right? So when you when you see a long haul truck going across the plains of Alberta or, <laughs> or Montana, those are, the stuff is covered in a really heavy duty tarp material that's very strong nylon. So this drogue that these guys make down in Tasmania is made out of that on the top and bottom it has like a pocket um and then in the middle it's mesh and on the top end you would stuff a long foam pool noodle down that pocket and then run a rope through it and on the bottom end you would put some steel chain on the bottom part of the pocket to help it sink on the bottom the top floats the chain sinks and then it connects on both sides to a rope that you would then extend some rope to either side of the boat it's a really ingenious in fact i have a a winch is it winchwood or winwood winchwood winchwood i think winchwood i have a winchwood drogue that i use on my smaller boat and i am going to have my mother sew some pocketing into the top and the bottom of that and employ the same ideas that the tasmanian drogue has you put some foam and some chain in it because it doesn't always want to open up quite right it twists and you know the chain would get get it straight down below and it's perfect yeah because i had this discussion with with um devon sorry devon? um yeah. gone blank get oh, old what's his old, old what's his face yeah um sorry devon you're not a watch his face yeah. um but uh at the same thing especially on a brisk day because the surface chop kind of wants to keep the drogue collapsed and it's hard to yes. get it open and deploy and i've often yeah. thought about maybe not so much in uh, flotation on the surface, but maybe even, you know, the clip-on depth, the weights we use for um, setting our indicator depth and just clip those onto the, you know, onto the snap links or whatever on the bottom just to help, you know, pull that lower lip of the drogue down and, and help it open and deploy. So so you've got one of those Tasmanian drogues? I have two of them, yeah. I have one for my boat and I have one of my guides, uh, Tom Cummins, and he's in my okay. second one. And he... He loves it. So are they easy to get? Because I know listeners will probably go, okay, I want that because we're fly fishers. And as soon as we hear something new and neat, we need it. Um, did you find a place in Tasmania where to get them? Or is Tom know? Or is that something we can share with listeners? Or is that? No, I, ha- I have no idea. Unfortunately, I had no idea. You know, 
I actually had Tom bring them to me when he came in June of 2018. So he brought me two, obviously without, you know, rope, foam, pool noodles or chain. We got all that stuff at the local hardware store and, and put them together. Yeah. You don't want to put that in your luggage. The foam's not no. so bad, but chain, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Little, it's so, yeah, I don't know. I would imagine that, that you could probably find... Uh, them online yeah just look up tasmanian drogue or something and and see so yeah but interesting i did notice that in his videos when he's deploying it. i'm going okay that's a different looking drogue it looks mesh like in spots that water can flow through it and help regulate the drift um but you could definitely tell that the top lip of it had some sort of flotation in it because it's right up at the surface so and that's obviously going to make that pretty good when you're over shallow water like you said you've got uh, i remember crane prairie there's lots of um, law, you know, trees sticking up and rocks and things like that that can catch a drogue. I'll tell you something else that's really cool about it is you can, um, if your rope isn't too long, particularly your bow rope um, isn't too long, you can actually just leave it in the water, start your motor, and it, it just kind of collapses and goes up against the side of the boat yeah. while you're moving and doesn't get into the motor. If, I, I mean, if you had a really long bow rope for some reason, it certainly could get caught underneath the boat and get into the, the prop, which would be no good. Yeah, I do that with my my um, Gray's one I have, which is like the Winchwood style. It's got long ropes on it, and it will, um, you can trail, and it trails way behind the boat. You know, you can still maneuver around, just no sharp turns, right? Big, wide, sweeping yeah. turns. Um, because the other style of drogue you can get are the conical ones that, you know, look like a little cone. Um, those you have to, you know, kind of collapse and bring into the boat because you don't want to be trolling around with those open. That wouldn't be a good thing. They just remain open. So that's cool. So everybody understands what lock style tactics are. The other thing I want to talk to you about with dry fly fishing is people see that surface rise. Do you have it? Cause it's not always to the adult stage or whatever. It could be to a merger stage or something like that. Do you have any tricks you use to reading those rise forms? And after you've read it, and made the appropriate fly choice, how do you target them? Do you cast in front of it, behind it, or right at it? You know, any sort of thoughts or guidance on rise forms? Well, I, I think in general, um, if it's not too windy of a day, you can usually you can usually see the fish and, and how their mouth either comes up or, or sometimes you just see their kind of dorsal uh, mm-hmm. come up. And that is, you know, a good indication whether they ate the adults or the emerger. For me... I usually, I mean, it just, it, it just really depends. There's not a yes answer to this. It, it's, re, you know, reading the water. Sometimes I would say, generally speaking, I like to throw, you know, if I'm prepared to do it, I like to throw pretty close to the previous ring uh, that just occurred, right? Yeah. So if fish comes up, I like to put it basically really close to that ring. If I know, but can tell the, you know, the direction that the fish is going, um, you know, usually lead that fish by three or four, maybe four or five feet and try to get that, you know, that next rise form uh, that's going to, you know, occur. I think, you know, we fish uh, dry flies in, in some pretty clear and very, very shallow water, you know, lots of stuff that might be, you know, eight, 10 inches to, to maybe three or four feet deep, but extremely clear. Um, so we're seeing a lot of the fish, you know, cruising and, and, um, yeah, it's it's very it's very visual and it's very exciting. Um, but I would say this that you know, if you do put that cast down to a fish that just rose and and you didn't get you know the fish to come up to the fly, I'm a big fan of waiting and not 
casting immediately again. Let perhaps another fish is going to cruise by in that same, you know, that same line that that's the feeding lane um, or the fish that rose there is feeding in a, in a circular pattern, which we witness a lot. And by, you know, by continuously casting into an area, you could spook those fish off where, you know, they're kind of like, like what you and your wife saw <laughs> at Monster Lake, where they just become just out of the zone of the, of the casting range. Yeah. And so I like to let the fly sit and disturb the water less um, and let the fish find the fly. And that can be painful at times. Um, but if you're letting the fly sit for three or four or five minutes, almost every time you're going to get, you know, you're going to get a fish that's going to come up yeah. to that fly. And so let's say it is every five minutes. That's a lot of fish per hour that you have a chance of putting in the net. Um, and that's pretty good fishing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It's more hunting uh, than just, you know, the traditional blind casting and retrieving that we do when we're fishing subsurface. It's a lot of, it's what I like about the dry fly game. It's a lot of one V one. Um, you see your yeah. target, you're trying to read where he's going, uh, and then make your cast where you anticipate that fish to go. Although I find with calm water, you know, when it's flat calm, they can be so random. They can cruise three feet and all of a sudden something attacks their interest and they take a 90 degree turn to the left. And just at that moment, you're about to deliver and <laughs> a fish has gone the other way or worse, turned into your cast. And now you've dropped it right on top of their head and they scatter pretty quick. <laughs> Fly line yeah, lands on top of them. Do, does the wind influence... Um, if you see a rise, where are you going to put the fly upwind or, or downwind? Are you any influence that way? If you see a fish rise and there's a little bit of chop on there, so it's not, you can't really read, you know, the water, the, the surface chop is masking um, the fish's presence. Are you, if you're going to make a best guess cast, uh, does the wind influence you at all? Yeah. I mean, you know, usually fish are going to feed into the wind. So I would try to throw, you know, try to throw that next cast upwind of where the rise was um, because, you know, typically they're, they're feeding into the wind. Okay, cool. Um, fly patterns. I hate to ask this question because that's oh, so, it's. But I so, love I love to answer it because I love flies. I know, but it's it's so you know people always like to ask me what if you had one fly to fish. It's like that's an impossible question, right? Because it's yeah. just you know it's just. But for your in your if what are the patterns that are going to predominate your dry fly box? Let's start with the terrestrial. Sure. So um, you know, a couple of years ago. I developed a fly. Did I invent the fly? No, I didn't. It's a foam beetle, but it has some some Jeff uh, influence to it. So it's tied on a jig hook. I call yeah. it a jiggy twist beetle. Yeah. And one of the things that bothered me about fishing beetles um, tied on a traditional dry fly hook was, you know, you put that big foam back on it and then you tie a foam, you know, red or orange or yellow strike indicator, you know, thorax piece. Um, plus rubber legs, the fly turns over a lot. It's upside down a lot. Yeah. And again, a lot of times customers don't see it. So you're like, the fly's upside down. Huh? The fly's upside down, mend it. Yeah. And and by the time they mend it, the fly's no longer where we wanted it to be. It's not in the target zone anymore. And so I was like, I've seen some dry flies tied on jig hooks. I'm gonna I'm gonna try some beetles tied on jig hooks. And and I and I, I started tying the same beetle on a jig hook. And then I got the idea of doing this, this twisted Antron yarn and peacock curl body. So brown Antron peacock curl, twisted serendipity style, wrapped, put foam over the top, rubber legs on, strike indicator top. And on a jig hook, I would say it lands nearly 100% of the time right side up. You, know, you don't have that, that situation of saying to the customer or yourself, 
where's my red top? I can't yeah. see it. Mend it. It's already there. Um, so it's increased how many fish that we're catching for sure. And I really like Quigley's uh, flag ant. Um, I think it's the the very best ant. You can fish, you know, you can fish it in black or whatever color ant, and you can fish it big or small. It shows up in all kinds of water types, and fish just seem to really like it. I love the Rio hoppers, the tan one and the pink one. The last couple of summers, man, I've made a living on that pink hopper. Um, <laughs> it's pretty pretty silly. And uh, for calabatus, you know, I'd have to say, um, well, you know, Harrop's Captive Dun is one of my very favorite dry flies. It floats really low in the film. I am a gigantic fan and have been since Gary LaFontaine produced the, wrote the book The Dry Fly. Uh, which is a masterpiece, and he had a fly in there called the Halo Emerger, and uh, started tying the Halo Emerger several years ago for Calabatus. Uh, originally, I just was using it on spring creeks for blueing olives and PMDs, but for Calabatus, I think it's even better. I like uh, Comparatums usually for a dry fly, uh, just you know either gray or that nature spirit. You know, Calabatus color dubbing is one of my favorites. A lot of times, I'll do poly wings. Mm-hmm. Tell you, um, our second brood of, of Calabatus that we get here and that later in the summer are a perfect match for a Tiemco 102Y number 17 hook. And uh, I'll compare it then with that, you know, poly wing and that Calabatus color dubbing on a 17 hook. It's just the sweet spot for our second brood of Calabatus that we have here. So I love that. Um, you know, we already mentioned the Tom Thumb for the Traveling Sedge. Um, damsels, you know, I, I fish a lot of different damsels, extended, you know, obviously extended body things, you know, some days the fish really love them and other days, well, it's like, why don't they love them? Why, (laughs) why fish? Why? Yeah. And, uh, you know, this year I, I did some experimenting with a blue chubby, you know, like a size 10 or 12 blue chubby, uh, during damsel action and had some very nice success with a blue chubby. Okay. Um, yeah. And then for the black dancer caddis, I typically like a, a black X caddis and a 16 or 18. Um, and then I like your your floating water boatman an awful lot. Oh, the water floatman. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a heck of a fly, man. Yeah. It's, uh, you know what? And that came about watching fish crash them right on the surface. And all the boatman patterns we have this, you know, when I came up with that fly, it's 20 plus long time ago. I don't want to admit how old I am. <laughs> um, and most of our patterns were all subsurface. So it, you just got caught out going, man, if I had something, and they would eat a Tom Thumb. That was what you went to, but, you know, the Tom Thumb gets shredded. Um, so you're looking something with a little more durable. It's basically a beetle with some rubber or, you know, silly stretch floss or super floss or one of those spandex, spanflex legs sticking out the side. And I've also yeah. got a variation I call the greater water floatman because I believe in England, they call a back swimmer a greater water floatman. And a back swimmer is the larger, more aggressive cousin. And in our local lakes, from about August through until mid-October, even late October, they'll take those on the surface as well. So it's for me, it's common to have both of those on there because it seems like for an hour they'll eat the boatman and then they'll flip over to eat back swimmers and they'll flip back to boatman or they'll take one or the other. So, you know, with that dropper system, you can give them the best of both worlds and let them decide, just please eat one. So yeah, yeah. those are good flies. That's a great list, actually. That's, uh, I think I'm going to be adding, I like that. You know, and I talked to a, a tire a number of years ago that was using jig hooks for hoppers 
and larger patterns because of the same issue because of they're notorious for, you know, even when I use them on moving water, you got to do that mend because you can see the legs sticking up sideways like masts on a boat and you got to flip them over. Okay, there it goes. It's settled down. And uh, so that's a great idea because I guess that tippet probably pulls that fly down so it lands properly on the water and just that little bit of mass down there. So that's pretty cool. I'll have to get a picture of the recipe for that for you. Maybe we can put, the, I'll put the, if you don't mind, I'm going to put those in the show notes. Uh, Jeff's yeah. favorite dries and uh, people can, um, I don't know if you've got a few pictures of them, but I can certainly put links to YouTube and that kind of stuff. I do. Yeah, I, I have some pictures of them and I'll send you some too. Okay, so that'll be perfect. I'm actually having Dreamcast uh, is producing some of my flies for the last few years and we just added that one this year. So I'll send you some. And of course, they're available in your shop, right? For both walk-in and mail orders. Of course, they are available in the shop. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is there anything we haven't covered in your love for fishing on the surface? Have we missed something? We talked rods, lines, reels, leader setup, your flies. We talked about reading rise forms, uh, fishing anchored, lock style, using your Minkota motor, which I think is a cool tactic that people don't think about. Um, we talked about applying floatant and keeping the flies dry. Anything else you can think of? Uh, you know, I'll probably think of it in like three hours. But, uh, <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back then. That'll be good. Part two. Part two. Yeah. No, I can't think of anything else. Um, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of a lot of ground today. It was fun. Yeah, it's fun. I love these rambling conversations that take us a while, but we're talking fly fishing, so we can listen forever and talk forever. So how can people learn more about um, your fly shop? Um, Jeff, yourself, I know you've got a blog for example, um, where can they get that information on both the fly shop and yourself? Yeah. So, um, you know, to find me, you can Google the fly fishers place in sisters, Oregon, or just go directly to the website, which is www.flyfishersplace.com. We have an Instagram page, uh, under the name, the shop's name, the fly fishers place. I'm just getting ready to launch. Uh, it's up, but I haven't put any content on it. Uh, Oregon underscore Stillwater underscore Jeff um, site on Instagram uh, that I plan to put some more Stillwater content on that will be kind of separate from the the Fly Fisher's Place content. And uh, I'm on Facebook, Jeff Perrin. Uh, we couldn't afford two R's, so I'm just <laughs> P R I M. Well, I think I think my family had to sell the other R at some point back in like the twenties. So <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, happy to you know to have some follows on Facebook um, out there too. And then we, you know, the Fly Fishers Place is obviously on Facebook. So yeah, those are you know those are the ways I do. I write a um, I write kind of a weekly fishing report slash blog. Uh, sometimes it is got a little opinion in there sometimes it's got some you know necessary announcements of you know openings and closures of waters or boat ramps or facilities near those places sometimes i'll complain about you know the forest service uh not having bathrooms open when the boat ramps are open or you know not putting (laughs) not putting docks in you know even though the lake has been ice free for for three weeks and and i actually kind of gained this amazing you know friendships with people they're like jeff perrin's the only guy speaking up for us out there you know that's good because he's willing to we need he's willing to take on the big the man right he's willing to take on the man (laughs) and uh um you know i'm sure i haven't made any friends of the forest service but i've made a lot of friends with the anglers that that uh that do really 
appreciate the fact that you know docks and bathrooms are in when when the lake is open so yeah. you know stuff like that it's it's on my you know i do i try to do it every every saturday morning sometimes it ends up being friday night or sunday morning that you know but mainly every week i'm doing some kind of extensive fishing report and blog for my area that's cool so and of course they can if they're in the area and they want to fish with you they can obviously book a trip correct and 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 put well, some of these yeah tactics and yeah. lessons we've talked about today into action and, and get your tutelage uh, while they're out there 1v1 it's tough to beat that yeah it might be hard to get a, a day with me but um, not impossible in some cases but uh, I have we have about 15 guides that work for me at the fly fishers place and and we can find them find them a guide that can take them out well, that's cool that's cool well Jeff I want to thank you uh, for joining me today um, it's great to f- talk to a fellow Stillwater addict. Uh, <laughs> you know, we can, I think this is part of our therapy. We get to talk back and forth about some of our favorite aspects of stillwater fly fishing and particularly what we talked about today, dry fly fishing. Cause I don't think people perhaps are aware of it, that there's such great dry fly opportunities on lakes, um, as well and, and how to best take advantage of them. So I thank you so much, uh, for doing that. Phil, I actually just thought of, remember when you asked me, do you have one yep. other thing you want to, uh, yeah. by all means, let's get it in, you know, so the other day you and I were talking um, about your friend that moved to Central Oregon um, yeah. and fishes East Lake a lot. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of assumptions about, you know, summer months and water temperature and, and where, you know, where the fish may or may not be, you know, in relation to dry fly fishing opportunities. Um, yeah. You know, we get times in the summer here at, that, you know, water temperature will, will pop up into the 70 degree range and absolutely positively um, we're going to not be fishing the, the, you know, the shallow zones where that water temperature is going to be hot. But I think that, you know, soon thereafter we'll start to get cool nights, especially at, you know, 6,000 feet and above. Um, And we might get a big thunderstorm and bring some cold rain or hail to the lake and water temperatures are going to drop. One of the things that, that I, that I, think becomes a little bit cliche in the fishing world is is that you know that the, there's no fish on the shallow zone eating dry flies and i'm just here to tell you that that's not what i'm finding personally i'm finding that you know i can work that shallow zone particularly with a hopper ant or beetle and find fish you know nearly every time i'm also watching water temperature yeah. and making sure i'm not harming fish but at east lake and at you know hosmer and and at polina I'm finding fish eating dry flies nearly every day that the season is open, um, except for except for the times that I choose not to fish them to keep the fish safe. So yeah, certainly there's fish that are going out into that drop off zone or down into the deep zone and getting above the thermocline, and that's an option. But dry fly fishing is almost always an option too. Yeah. I think that's really important. And, uh, you know, in lakes like you've got down there, those fish by that time of the season have their condition to look up. They've fed enough on the surface to know that it's a great food source and you can call them up even when you don't necessarily see uh, any insects on the surface. So the, they know lunch is served up there and they swing by the cafeteria to see what's available to eat. So yeah, that's an important thing. Because I, I, I agree, sometimes we get you know, pigeonholed or stereotyped into doing certain things because that's what people say to do. And sometimes it's it's good to break the mold and, and just go out and, and fish and do what you've always done. I think the most important thing that we can do is is be observant. Yes. Um, and, and just, you know, go with the flow and be observant and not be like, 
well, I read this that in August, I'm only supposed to fish out here in, in 40 feet of water and suspend my fly at 27 feet because I read that on the internet. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. So, so go check it all out. If it works, do it. But if it doesn't, Hallelujah. do something yeah. else, right? Just don't continue banging your head against that wall because you're going to get concussed or bloodied or, or fr- uh, at the very least you're going to get frustrated. So no, that's a great, yeah. that's actually a great tip to, to end this on. So again, Jeff, thanks so much. Um, in the show notes, I'll make sure we put all that list of your, your favorite dries. I think our listeners will like that. They're always looking for new flies to put in their fly box. There's a couple in there uh, that have piqued my interest that uh, I'll put in there as well. And uh, we'll have all the links to the fly fisher's place and your personal stuff. So let me know when that, uh, that website of yours is up or your, sorry, the Instagram page, cause I'll be one of your first followers. So. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Okay. So again, Jeff, thanks so much. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully you found this uh, enjoyable and we'll see you on the next Littoral Zone podcast. I want to thank Jeff for taking the time to join us today. As you heard, Jeff loves stillwater fly fishing, especially if he can catch trout using dries and emergers. Please make a point of dropping by the Fly Fisher's Place website and be sure to check out Jeff's blog. His site contains a wealth of information, including a section detailing the lakes and rivers in his area. You can also follow Jeff through his social media pages, Instagram and Facebook. I'll be sure to put the links in the show notes section. If you are ever in or are planning to visit the Sisters area, be sure to contact Jeff at his shop for the latest intel on both the rivers and lakes within his region. Or perhaps better yet, book a guided trip to maximize your experience. While you are visiting the show notes section for links to Jeff's website and social channels, be sure to check out the listing of Jeff's favorite surface patterns he listed in the show. Until next time, I hope you can get out on one of your favorite lakes and give dries and emergers a chance, even if it appears nothing is feeding at the surface. You might be pleasantly surprised at what you might be able to attract up to the surface to eat your fly or flies. Thanks for listening. That was Phil Roy on the Littoral Zone, part of the Wet Fly Swing podcast and Swing Outdoors. I wanted to give Phil a big thank you for another great episode. I hope this special series gives us a chance to let Phil up the level for all of us through this podcast. You can send any feedback you have to me, dave at wetflyswing.com, or check in with Phil anytime. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast series, and I can't wait till we get the next episode of the Littoral Zone out there. One big reminder, we are going to be doing some stillwater schools around the country. If you're interested, anytime, you can check in wetflyswing.com slash stillwater school, and uh, you can find out where we're heading next. All right. Thanks for stopping in today. See you on the next episode of The Littoral Zone.